This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So we're, we're looking at basically suffering through a series of stories, because I think that's one of the things with theology is that we can find the truth. So what theology actually does is actually abstracts truths that we live on a practical level. And so sometimes when the truth becomes, in a sense, too obscure, when the abstract concept becomes too obscure, you know, suffering unites us to Christ. Okay, that's really abstract, right? But when you hear it in the concrete through a particular story, it makes a whole lot more sense. So what I'm doing tonight with this talk is it's actually divided into two different sections. So the first section is going to look pretty fast. And so that's all about what we're all looking for, which is happiness. So that's kind of the pretty fast pace. And then we're going to shift into suffering. And then I'll tell you also why I chose to present in this way. So we're going to dive right in with, I'm sure you've read this. I mean, if you haven't, you might want to read it because it's absolutely fantastic. It will help you with the rest of your life with every single conversation you ever have with anyone, which is Thomas Aquinas's, what's called his treatise on happiness. So it's in the first part of the, um, sec the it's in, the, it's in the first part of the second part of the Summa, questions one through 17, the treaties on happiness. You'll also find this actually echoed in some of his predecessors, like you philosophy majors, Aristotle and Boethius, both have covered some of these same topics. So basically, what is it? All of us want to be happy. But human beings, like look out there, look around you, right? The people who are not here. <laughs> no offense to them, because they're still on their journey, right? We're still, on, we're still all on our journey. And we remember when we were maybe still there or like that, right? And maybe we're still astray now. But really what we're all looking for is happiness. And one of these things these great philosophers and theologians recognize is that because human beings are, are all sharing the same nature, we make the same basic mistakes about where we're going to find happiness or we actually start trying to in a particular places. Where's the first place everybody looks? Money, right? Because, I mean, but okay. So the question is, why do people look for happiness and money? Well, because they think it's somehow going to make them happy. But the point is, it's not going to make them everlastingly happy. Why not? Well, because look at this. Don't you know some people who are like hoarders? Like they become obsessed with money and making more money, right? And so in trying to make money, they forsake their relationships where they become overly obsessed and it almost has control over them. And then there's also this really sad thing that happens. You know, why do people want money so they can buy really cool stuff? But what happens to cool stuff? It gets broken, smashed, right? You buy a new phone, and then just like six months later, there's a there's a whole another new phone out there. And then also sometimes if you have a lot of money and there's so much to do and so much to buy and so much there's all of this external stimuli, it can actually become exhausting, right? The whole consumer industry is actually pretty exhausting. But not only that, if you think about people who have a lot of money, what happens to them? They can get used for their money, right? Maybe people use you for your money. And it's people will even kill you for your money. Can you raise your hand if you know people who are rich who are not happy? Yeah, right? So they're all over the place. You know, a number of years ago, in Forbes magazine, they were interviewing this businessman. I think he was still like a multimillionaire, multi-billionaire in his particular field. And he was untouchable, right? So that's why he's like, okay, I can have some of your folks back I can tell you all my secrets because it was too late for anybody to catch up with me, right? I rode the right way. Um, he was an only child, mom and dad, and he just like beeline for success, all he ever did. 
So you're asking all these questions. What about this? What about that? And he talks about this in his document. He talks about these different um, economic factors. Da, 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 da. And so it's like the whole interview is like really just kind of blows your mind. You're like, this guy is a genius. Well, at the very end of the article, the interviewer asks this kind of like, you know, just kind of throwaway line, kind of like, you know, you have any regrets? And it, the, the, the multi-billionaire the interview is like he shifted. And instead of taking this question from a business perspective, he actually took it on a personal level. And he said, well, yes. I would give all the money in the world if there's some, if there would be someone who would miss me if I didn't come home at night. Right? He never took the time to fall in love. Because all he thought was important was money. And now why was he afraid to get married? Well, because he thought maybe she would just be using me for my money. So it's so fascinating, right? Um, people who have a lot don't enjoy what they have. And then people who have a little can just enjoy the little that they have. So there's something really kind of confusing or tricky about money. So we're not going to find everlasting happiness in money. It's just not there. It's not enough. Which, where's another place we look for everlasting happiness? Power, control, right? You think, oh, if, you know, all those people who want, they want world power. <laughs> My next plan will be to conquer the world. Because they think that's what's going to make them happy, right? Or even just in our, just in the small bit of our life, we want to control every single thing. Okay, raise your hand if you like controlling, micromanaging people. You like them? Oh, no, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody likes controlling, micromanaging people, right? But I mean, we can kind of relate to why they might want to do that. Okay. So, but what happens? People who will have power, who have control, what's, what's going to happen to them? There will always be people who are not happy with your power, with your control, with the types of decisions you're making. And think about this. People, you don't like them simply because they're in power. Or even worse, maybe they're too controlling. And they, the, the people who they control are resentful of them, right? They find them repulsive. This is, this is a fascinating image, isn't it? So Anthony Polero made this about his mom, right? Isn't that terrible? This is kind of a, a, wouldn't you hate to be this woman? And then think about all these great conquerors in history. They always wanted more power, right? Napoleon, Alexander the Great. And what else happens when you have power? Well, your life is also at stake, right? Because people want to kill people who have a lot of power because then they can be the ones in power. And so people try to manipulate you, they try to use you, they may plot against you, etc. And so basically, when you have a lot of power, you live in fear. And if you're living in fear, you're not going to be happy. And think how many people, in trying to grasp the entire world in their hands, try to control every aspect of their lives, have actually been destroyed by it, right? They think they're unlocking the power of the universe, right, that zipper when in fact they're only wreaking their own destruction. So we're not going to find everlasting happiness in power, right? And you know people who are powerful who are not happy. Okay, what's another place we try to look? Beauty. That famous mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And there's something about beauty, right? I mean, who doesn't want, who doesn't want to look that perfect, right? To get attention, to get admiration, or, you know, to have Disney characters make them look like them. Um, but what's one of the things about beauty? What happens to you? Well, it's 
not everlasting because you end up getting chubby and wrinkly, right? And then have you also run across this, um, this idea that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? So like say, um, you know, so there's a particular person that you want to think that you're attractive and they don't think that you're attractive. And then another person that you don't want to think that you're attractive thinks you're attractive, right? So, so they're not so good, okay. And then supermodels, right? They're kind of like the models of beauty. You know what they call them? The, some of the most tortured souls alive. Why? Because envy and cruelty are rampant in the modeling world. But not only that, they're only valued for something external. There's actually psychological studies that have shown that when people are valued for an internal quality rather than external appearance, there's a deeper source of satisfaction and self-esteem. Doesn't that just make sense? And then, what else do we know about supermodels? Well, they're literally dying to be thin, right? They're literally dying to be beautiful. There are all these horror stories about supermodels eating Kleenex, cotton balls, etc. Okay, super dangerous, right? You can actually get into the emergency room by doing that type of thing. But not only that, or even more sadly, we know that, I mean, even starting before 2006, 2006 was kind of just a landmark. Why? Because within six months, three supermodels all died of anorexia. So for instance, um, Anna Caroline arrested. She was a runway model, and she was surviving on lettuce and diet coke. She went into cardiac arrest on runway. Within that same six months, two sisters died. Liesl Ramos and her sister Elena Ramos. But this has been going on and on and on. We just give, I mean, I mean it'd be depressing, but it's possible to give an entire presentation just on all of the supermodels who have died because of eating disorders. And it's still happening now, right? So just even, just a little over a year ago, Yossi Maria, who is an Instagram influencer, she died of anorexia again. Um, again, that's taking the lives, the lives of people who are just longing for this beauty. And so you're not gonna find, um, Everlasting happiness and beauty, right? We can think of beautiful people who are not happy. Okay, what's another place for that? Ah, pleasure, right? We think, well, pleasure's gonna make me happy. So, hamburgers, pizza, french fries. Mm. But not just the pleasure that we get from food, right? But, but drugs, alcohol, sex, right? All of these things. But how does pleasure work? Let's just think about how pleasure works for a minute. Browns. What, how does this work? I eat one brownie, and I'm happy. Then I eat a second brownie, and I'm happier. Right? Then I eat a third brownie, I'm happier. Then I eat a fourth brownie, I'm even happier. This is how it works. This is not how it works, right? Like, keep eating, keep eating, keep eating, keep eating. So keep telling my mouth, keep something in my mouth. All of a sudden, I'm like, poor sick panda, right? So that's why they, they, they have this word, surfeit. It's the disgust caused by excess, right? When you have too much of something, and not only that, but what happens with the things that cause pleasure for us? Well, they can make us into slaves. And so whether you think about some other things, some other sources of pleasure that we get that are technological, right? Whether it's video games or social media or pornography, no matter what it is, the pleasure can turn us into a slave. And so it's not going to make us everlastingly happy, right? Because to be a slave is not to be happy. I love this. I ran across this in the work of Jacques Philippe, who, if you're not familiar with him, I can't recommend him enough. Fantastic. But look at this. Where there is no joy, there can never be enough pleasure. Think about that. Where there's no joy, 
There can never be enough pleasure. Okay, let's think of another place. What's another place that we look for everlasting happiness? Fame. Remember that song? Fame, I want to live forever. Okay, can't sing, sorry. Um, <laughs> but people think, okay, if I'm famous, if I'm noticed, then I'll be happy. Okay, but think about the people who are famous now. Were they famous five years ago? Will they be famous five years from now? For the most part, no, right? Fame by its very nature is fleeting, right? This was one of the great themes in Shakespeare, the fickleness of human beings. But not only that, what happens to people who are famous? Not only is their fame very short-lived, but you know, their privacy is taken away. The, the paparazzi are always following them around. So how can you possibly be happy like that? And moreover, the famous are defamed, right? Some people will hate you, be envious of you, simply because you are famous. Now, very interesting, I don't know if any of you happened to watch this, but there was a Netflix documentary on Lady Gaga uh, in 2017. And it was discussing that time of her life because it was at this time, right? She was, there all this pressure behind her halftime show at the Super Bowl. She broke up with her fiance, Taylor Kinney. She's struggling with an autoimmune disease while she's trying to work on her new album, Joanne. All this kind of stuff was going around her when they were making this documentary about her. And there was a particularly um, evocative scene. And Lady Gaga was talking to her hairstylist, Brandon Maxwell, or just her stylist in general. And this is what she said. She said, I'm alone, Brandon, every night. And all these people will leave, right? They'll leave, and then I'll be alone. And I go from everyone touching me all day and talking, me at, talking at me all day to total silence. Right, so even as famous as she is, you hear this this echo of sadness, right? This echo of loneliness, that there's this something missing. And even think about those legendarily famous people, right? Like Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley. Well, you know how Marilyn Monroe died? She died because of um, an overdose of barbiturates. And Elvis Presley, something very similar, right? He died of a heart attack that was due to an overuse of barbiturates. So if, if fame makes you happy, why would they be committing suicide? Or why would they be going to drugs to begin with? And then even more recently, right, I think some of us, um, maybe your parents' generation, right, was really saddened by the death of Robin Williams. Here we thought somebody really happy, right, who makes other people laugh. And, and he committed suicide. And then in even more recent times, um, um, Ariana Grande's boyfriend committed suicide. Chris Cornell committed suicide. Chester Bennington. He was, um, he, Chester Bennington, his net worth was actually $30 million at the time he committed suicide, right? So there's something missing. Fame is not enough to make us happy. So look at these. These are, these are five of the typical places, right? Money, power, beauty, pleasure, fame. And I think you can see, it becomes pretty clear when you start thinking about it, you're not gonna find everlasting happiness there. What's another place we look? Another place we look is other people, right? And this, in fact, out of all the five places, probably comes the closest to where we're gonna find some kind of happiness. But at the same time, we know we're not gonna be finding everlasting happiness there, why? Because, well, first, what happens to your best friends, you know, when you're a kid? They move away, or you move away, or people die, right? They change. 
They can even betray you. And then sometimes people love you, but they love you in such a way that they have expectations that are so high that it actually, their love actually feels like chains rather than something that sets you free. And what else? Well, there's infidelity. There's misunderstanding. There's manipulation. And sometimes the person you want to love you doesn't love you in the way you want them to love you, right? There's this whole kind of like struggle for power, for control, for attention, for I'm not getting enough from you, right? So other people, there's this kind of strange dynamic. I love this image by Rene Magritte. I think I find it very haunting. It's actually called the famine. Isn't that interesting? He calls this work the famine. So you see these clownish figures, and what are they doing? They're trying to consume one another. What do we all want? We all want attention, to be noticed, to be thought of as important, right? It all boils down to the fact that we want love. But what do we end up doing instead? We end up consuming each other. And something I find very fascinating is that this same type of idea is captured in this more type of contemporary art, right? Like, so it's trying to capture what's going on online, right? No real identities online. So you know, this hand grabbing another person's face, destroying them. You never know who is commenting about you, no face, or who you're commenting about. And yet words are powerful, right? We can destroy each other online. And think about today, right? Like what's going on tonight? Something to pray for. These people who are in the hookup culture, right? Fine, you can use my body and I'll remain anonymous. So this is another haunting Rene Magritte image called the lovers. And isn't this sad? Isn't this a sad kind of love? But even, if, even in real romantic relationships, right? Which is something you want, a faithful for life, permanent bond between husband and wife, right? In a sacrament, something blessed by Christ, right? His first miracle was worth the wedding feast of Cana. Even in this type of relationship, we can have false expectations. You know what? One of the worst things you could possibly do to your spouse is expect your spouse to fill you completely. That's impossible. No one can do it, right? Because you have an immortal soul. Only God can fill it, right? So your parents fill it to some extent, your siblings, right? Your work, right? But only God can fill you completely. So yes, your spouse and your children can fill you to some extent, but they can't fill you completely. Rather, what Christian marriage is about is this, walking together side by side toward God, right? Helping one another. So that's the real meaning of Christian marriage. Now, we've looked at these six places. Again, money, beauty, power, pleasure, fame, other people. And it is where all human beings basically start off when they're looking for happiness. But you know what's really amazing? Is that in that very search, there's an insight. That you're on to something. Right? Anyone who's looking at those places are on to something. Okay, so just let's, let's talk about the genuine spiritual value people are looking for when they look for happiness and money. What is it? What's the genuine spiritual value they're looking for? when they're looking for happiness and money. Don't you think it's peace, security? Because isn't that what money gives you? When you have enough money, then you can rest from work. You have peace, you have security, right? Okay, let's think about the other one. 
What about power, control? What are people looking for when they're looking? What's a real spiritual value? Isn't it somehow stability? Stability. Or even a sense of self-mastery. But beyond that, I think there's something even more amazing in this desire for power and control. I think there's a recognition that we, each one of us, each human being, is called to some noble accomplishment. You have a sense that you are called to something great. You have a sense that you are called to some marvelous achievement. And that is true. And that's what God has destined you for. And so when we have this desire for power or for control, it's actually that deeper desire that's at work. Now, beauty. What are we looking for? What's the genuine spiritual value we're looking for in beauty? Isn't it to be loved? It's to be loved, right? Because beautiful things are loved. But not only that, beauty is itself its own perfection. Right? So you know there's all kinds of amazing mathematical proportions that go into a beautiful body, a beautiful face. And in fact, that's what we're all made for. We're all made for perfection. Not a physical perfection, but a spiritual perfection. Right? So that's the genuine spiritual value. Okay, what are we looking for when we look for happiness and pleasure? What's the genuine spiritual value in pleasure? Isn't it joy? Right? That's what we're really looking for. Now, this is what I love. Thomas Clemens has a fantastic definition of joy. He says, joy comes from the rest in the possession of a good. Does that make sense? Joy is rest in the possession of a good. Okay, so let me give you a concrete example. So one of our sisters, Sister Nicholas Marie, is an amazing cook. Okay, she was in charge of the kitchen this last summer. And she made this carrot cake. Okay, well, so we eat the whole meal, and I'm sitting at I'm sitting at this table in the little circle table, and um, we're talking and talking, enjoying the meal, and of course the best part for us, the carrot cake, right? So I take I take my fork and I look at my carrot cake, and it's like I can see how super moist it is, cream cheese frosting, right? I put it in my mouth, and you know what the first thing I think is? There is a God. There is a God. And he loves me. <laughs> right? Because, like, well, why does God give us, like, taste buds? Right? The capacity, the capacity to make these amazing, delicious tasting things. Um, so I'm resting in the possession of this good, right? A God who loves me. The beauty of, of, of what it means to be human. The beauty of my community that I'm sitting there with these other sisters who love me. Um, and you know, when I was your age, uh, I was thinking about this religious life thing. I was like, I knew sisters in this, okay? And by the way, I know, I'm sorry, raise your hand if you've never seen a sister before. Okay, there's some of you who have never seen a sister before. Okay, some of you have seen sisters before. Now, no worries, I mean, different people go to different places. So tomorrow morning, we're gonna actually have a coffee house, like question answer kind of thing, if you wanna come. And one of the things we're gonna do by popular vote is um, we have a 12 minute video that kind of takes you to our mother house with us in Nashville. You can see all the sisters. You can see what the content looks like. You can see us living our life. And so we'll just show you a quick 12-minute video, and then we'll answer questions on our life, and then we'll answer any other questions you have about anything in theology, philosophy, life in general, as best as we can. We'll also be like open floor, and anybody can share their 
your answers. Does that make sense? So you're welcome to come to that at 9 o'clock. There's going to be some amazing food made by people who love you. So, <laughs> okay, sorry. I didn't need to see. I really was surprised. Okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, so this is cool. So when I was when I was trying to decide if God was calling me or not, and where I was going to go, I went to visit the National Dominicans. Okay, so you're going to see this video tomorrow, and, I, and you're going to kind of get a sense. Okay, and when I was there, I was like, I was like, oh my goodness, these sisters are so joyful, and I didn't like. I just was like, that's. I was just like blown away by how joyful they are. And then I left and I was like, wow, I really want, I want that joy. But they're teachers. That's so boring. Who would want to do that? <laughs> okay, little did I know that I love teaching. Okay, so, um, but would you believe when I got back home and I'm sitting, I'm sitting at the University of Dallas in Mass, and this Dominican gets up to give the homily, and the first thing he said was quoting Thomas Aquinas. He said, Thomas Aquinas says, joy comes from the firm conviction that we are loved. Isn't that gorgeous? Joy comes from the firm conviction that we are loved. So it's like, that's why the sisters are so happy, right? They know they're loved by God. They know they're loved by each other. So I think that's a beautiful thing, right? And this is, this is what we're really looking for in pleasure, is this joy. Okay, what's the genuine spiritual value we're looking for in fame? Isn't it to be known? Right? We want to be known. We want to be noticed. We want to be loved. We want to be understood. So I think that's, that's part of the genuine spiritual value. And also, what happens is, when you're famous, you're kind of like the favorite, right? And not only that, when you're famous, you're known for some noble accomplishment. Right? So there's that that overlap with power, right? We're called to this noble accomplishment. And what happens when you're famous is that you're known for this noble accomplishment. And then other people. What are we looking for in other people? Well, similar to what we've seen in the other um, places we've looked. We're looking for love. We're looking for a place to belong. And you know, that's what's actually really beautiful about um, you all here, is that you know, you say hi to each other, you call each other by name, right? Like, hi, Alex, you know, hi, hi, Jason, whatever. You're like, it's, it's beautiful. And I'm sure, like, when you're not here, you're missed. And when you come back, you're welcome. So that's part of the happiness that we find in other people. This sense of belonging, right? God is a communion of persons. We're made to belong with and to each other. Okay, so that was the first part of the talk. So I just wanted to show you how we're looking for happiness in the places that we look in the genuine spiritual value. Now what I'd like to propose as I start the second part of the talk about suffering is I'm going to make an unbelievable proposal, which is that through suffering, we find the very things that will make us most happy. Okay, that's outrageous, isn't it? Because nobody likes suffering. But that's part of the beauty of suffering, right? Jesus says, I am the way. And what is his way? His way is the cross. And so suffering is actually a part of human life after the fall. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through 
a series of narratives, a series of stories. And actually, this is based on an article that I wrote for the National Catholic Biological Quarterly. So I can actually send that to Matthias on a PDF. And if you're interested, just make sure he has your email and he can just send it to you. So if you'd like to read the full article, you're welcome to do that. So I want to start with the first narrative. Um, so here it is. Where's the play button? Okay, there it goes. Isn't that awesome? Okay, that's Coke Life Argentina, if you ever want to Google it to show it to somebody. Um, okay, how does this make any sense? This makes zero sense. Okay, look at these people. What's happening? Their, their life is basically ruined. They're not getting any sleep. Uh, all their favorite stuff is destroyed, right? Remember the record? They can't even be alone with each other. And remember that um, scene where they're loaded down with diaper bags and they see the carefree jogging couple, right? And then yet, when they find out they're gonna have a second child, they're overjoyed, right? How does that make any sense? I think our Lord explains it perfectly when he says, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever seeks to lose his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will find it. Isn't that what happened to them? They found love. They found love in suffering, right? In that self-sacrifice that takes the form of suffering. Love takes the form of self-sacrifice, which is suffering. And love wants to include more, right? Like, look at all the trouble that goes through, like, you know, setting something like this up. There's love behind it, right? It wants to include more. And that's what happens. That's what happens with um, young married couples. They experience this wanting to include more. Now, what's the mystery at work here? Losing your life to find it. What happened to this couple is actually what happens to all of us in suffering. What does it mean to lose yourself? What does he mean to die? Right? We keep hearing about this in the gospel. Unless you die, unless a grain of wheat falls on the ground and dies, right? Lose what? Well, lose what you want. Well, what do I want? Sleep, <laughs> right? We highly value sleep, especially as college students. Sleep, the things we like, right? Think about the record album. We like our predictable schedule. You have to be ready to lose that. Lose control, lose my time, lose what I want. But what's the amazing thing that happens in losing all of these things? I also lose my selfishness. I lose my selfishness, which mars the genuine, deep spiritual beauty that the Lord created in me. And so this is a dying. And this is the dying, this is the suffering that makes the soul beautiful. Now, I don't know what the fall is like in Florida, but in, in Tennessee, the fall is definitely my favorite season. Why? Because leaves turn into these glorious colors, right? These reds and yellows, and there are, of course, still some greens, right? They, they become golden. And I thought to myself, isn't this amazing? These trees are dying, but they're beautiful. Things are beautiful when they're dying. People are beautiful. When they're dying. Have you ever, I don't know if you do this in Florida, fireplace? <laughs> Maybe you go to Wisconsin every once in a while. Um, but if you ever sit and watch a log campfire, um, the, when the fire is dying, it's beautiful, right? The middle of the log is all gone, so the two edges bash into each other, gash, gold, vermilion, Hopkins says, right? 
a fire that's dying that's real. And so this is the kind of death that we are invited to, right? The death to what we are, to what's ugly in us, so that we can become what we are not yet. And it's so gorgeous, you know, just being able to work with families over the, over the years, like working with marriage, family, couples, etc. Um, and hearing some married women, like just sharing married women, who are married women and married men, sharing the story of their lives. Okay, so there was this one married woman, I remember, but this is not the only story like this, right? I can multiply this by a million. But one in particular, I remember, there was this married woman, she came up to me after a talk, and she said, you know, sister, when I first married my husband, and we were, you know, um, even when we were engaged, you know, I, knew he, I noticed he wasn't the most sensitive, and he's kind of like impatient, and he wasn't always so thoughtful, but then, you know, he's just, and then you, he's a big shot, like, like, no offense to people who are saying law, um, but <laughs> he was like this big shot, super successful lawyer, right? And so um, he was climbing up the corporate ladder, et cetera, within his firm. And she said, and, and then he started having kids, you know? And um, and then he would, like, he, he, would, he started helping me with the kids because I said, you know, I can't do this by myself. So you know, he'd, like, he helped me with my baths. And then I remember one day, like, I was looking at the kitchen window, and he was taking them for a walk, and they were, you know, circling the, the block. And there he is with two kids, and, and the um, little, little one in the stroller, and the dog. And my little girl wanted to smell, his daughter, our daughter, wanted to smell a flower. And so here, this big shop lawyer, he stops to let her smell a flower. And she said, I looked at him, and I just, I just loved him even more than I loved him on the day we got married. Because what's happened to him? He's become more sensitive, more patient, more tender, more compassionate. And she said, and I also never realized how hilarious he is. He'll try to do things to make the kids laugh, and he's absolutely hilarious, right? So this is what's happening. The suffering that this couple is going through, right? The suffering that the dad is going through, that the mom is going through, what is it doing? It's a dying. A dying to the old self. And the birth of a new. So each one becomes more generous, more loving, more forgiving, more kind, more patient, more selfless, more funny even, right? Because you got to laugh at life. And what happens when you're all those things? When you're generous, kind, selfless, funny? You become more lovable. You become more irreplaceable to those who love you. So that's what happens in this initial stage of dying. Now, I'd like for us to add another layer of complication. So here's our next story. called Dear Future Mom. I think it's um, an absolute masterpiece. And I almost think I don't need to explain. But what's happening? What does this do? It, it captures something that I think we all experience. And what is it? It's that movement from the darkness of fear. Because remember at the beginning, Mom asks, I'm afraid. What kind of life will my child have? When we're on the threshold of suffering, or maybe we're in the, the beginning of the suffering, there's this fear that grips us, right? Fear of what? Fear of not knowing, 
fear of not being in control, fear of not, gonna, of not being able to do what we need to do, right? Fear of not being able to make it through it. But what does God do? He takes us from that darkness of fear into the light of love and joy. Right? That's what happens at the very end. That's why you love this movement. That's why you love this movement, right? This, this video captures in like three minutes a movement that we experience in suffering. What does our Lord say? Our Lord says, unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains but a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And our Lord is explaining to us the trajectory of our own lives. But this is what I think is like, okay? I mean, it's not a little goofy, okay? But this is what we're like. We're like this little grain. We're like, oh, I'm such an awesome grain. I'd actually like to be like a gold-covered grain. Maybe platinum-covered grain. Maybe a diamond-studded grain, right? Like, we, want, we have like, our ideas of like what we should be, right? As this little grain. But that's not how it happens. Well, maybe we're in the middle of getting our gold covering our diamonds. And then what does God do? He shoves us into the dirt. He buries us. We're like, what's going on? I don't like this. It's really dark in here. Right? This is really crummy, right? This is when he starts surrounding us with suffering. Something happening in your family, something happening between your parents. Maybe you found out you have some kind of illness. Or maybe there's right, we know what suffering is. We don't like it. It's dark. Not only is it dark, wait a minute, no, now there's all this water coming in, and it's yucky and cold, and I feel like that starts to get worse. More suffering. But then what starts to happen? We wait and wait and wait in the darkness, in the cold, in the drowning. And then all of a sudden, what's coming out of me? There's something coming out of me. It's green. It's beautiful. It's new growth. And what happens? You yield 30 or 60. That's what we're called to do. Your life becomes fruitful because of that suffering. But notice that same movement. Dying to what we are to become what we are not. I don't know if any of you are John of the Cross fans, right? This great Carmelite mystic from the 15th century. He has that famous way of the nada. It's an awesome poem. Like, if you ever want to read something you don't quite understand, it's a great place to go. That's how I thought. I said, oh, this is good. You read something in English that I totally don't understand. Okay. So, <laughs> when he says this, to come to the knowledge that you have not, you must go by a way in which you know not. Isn't that fascinating? To come to a knowledge that you have not, you must go by a way in which you know not. To come to be what you are not, you must go by a way in which you are not. To come to possess what you have not, you must go by a way in which you possess not. And this famous way of not. You know, when I was your age, I remember thinking, Okay, I know how the spiritual life works. 
I was learning, I was taking all this, I was taking this awesome class on St. Thomas Aquinas, his treatise on the virtues, right? We had this entire semester long class. I took this other moral theology class, I'm like, this is awesome, all this stuff. Okay, so this is a spiritual life. This is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take control, and I'm gonna become virtuous. And I'm gonna become more and more virtuous, more and more virtuous, more and more virtuous, and then I'll be so virtuous. Okay? So we think of like holiness as this ascent, but that's how I thought of it, okay? I thought it was like this ascent. And then I realized later on, much later on, that I was totally wrong. That the way of holiness is not an ascent of going higher and higher and higher and higher. It's actually a descent. It's actually going down, going lower and lower and smaller and smaller, and going down onto the ground and stretching out your arms to be nailed to the cross with Christ. To die with Christ. And that's what he wants. You know, that's where we meet him. He's on the cross. I love the way Bishop Andrew Cousins put it. He said, right now, think of that part of your life that causes you the most pain. What is that part of your life? Is it some kind of wound from your past? Is it, is it a relationship? Is it some kind of disease or disability that you have? Is it something about yourself that you hate? That there's, a, that there's a something in you, right? That if I gave you a magic wand and you could wave it over that, and it would go away, what is that thing? That's your cross. And that's precisely where our Lord wants to meet you. It's in that suffering. That's where we're invited to die. The greater we fall to the ground and die so that it can produce fruit 30, 60, or 100 fold. Think about those moms, the moms of the Down syndrome children. They were invited to die. Right? They died when they accepted their Down syndrome child. And what happened? One diaper at a time, one kiss at a time, one smile at a time. They became, they became happier than they could have ever imagined, right? That's yielding fruit 30, 60, or 100 fold. That's what God wants for us. He plans our entire life. There's nothing in your life. There's no part of that part that you want to wave the magic wand over that he doesn't know about. But he allowed it. Why? So that you would need it. Say, God will never test you beyond your strength. Have you heard that? False. He will test you beyond your strength. Why? So that you will need Him. Because it's when you need Him that you will come to Him and you will let Him be your God instead of what we all try to do, be our own God, right? Which doesn't work because we're kind of crummy gods. I don't think God is the most awesome God there ever is. Um, you know, this is so sad. Did you know that um, that video that I just showed you, Dear Future Mom, this gorgeous piece of art, did you know that that video was actually banned in France? Why? Because in France, sadly, 96% of parents, 96% of parents who receive the prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome, they choose to abort their children. Right, so they're missing out. Like, look at the joy that they're missing out on. And the French court, the, when they ruled, they made the ruling 
They said they banned the video because the video's depiction of happy Down syndrome children is, quote, likely to disturb the conscience of women who had lawfully made different personal life choices. Right, so I think from their story, you can see, um, from, the, from Dear Future Mom, I think you can see, this is the beauty that you're gonna miss out on. If you don't embrace the cross, you're gonna miss out on so much love and so much joy. To come to the knowledge you have not, you must go by a way in which you know not. To come to be what you are not, you must go by a way in which you are not. And you know what's actually, I don't know if you guys, um, you know, fake people, they're kind of hard to get along with, right? You're kind of just trying to be charitable and kind because, you know, that's Jesus and it's resting his life. But don't you love people who are like authentic, who are real? Right? This, this whole idea of becoming real, you know what's so ingrained? Like kids are like kids are kind of kids are kind of awkward, right? Kids are trying to be trying to be real, right? And so this is so amazing. There's this child, there's this little ball, I don't know, have you ever heard the Velveteen Rabbit? It's one of my favorites, okay? So it's like it captures this thing that's so part of the human psyche, which is to become real. I want to become authentic. So this story, the Velveteen Rabbit, what's it about? It's about stuffed animals that are becoming real. Okay, so what happens? There's this skin horse, and he's like the wise skin horse, and he's always real. And there's this new little novice rabbit. It's like kind of learn how to become real. Okay, so I'm going to read you this little excerpt, because I think it captures so perfectly what we're all trying to do. <coughs> okay, so here's the rabbit talking to skin horse, right? The beginner speaking to the expert. Does it, does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Well, does, does it happen all at once, like being wound up, rabbit asked, or does it happen bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become, it takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or who have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off. Your eyes drop out, you get loose in the joints, and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you're real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. Isn't that beautiful? Think about the mother hugging her Down syndrome child. Is either one of them ugly? No, except to people who don't understand. Okay, now what I'd like to do is introduce to you um, via pre-recorded video, a couple of friends of mine. Okay, so let me just kind of explain. So back, I don't know, a few years ago, we did, our community did something called Praying as a Family, because you remember that's part of living theology in, the, in reality, right? That's where, that's where children first learn about God and how to love God, right? And it's through this, this example of their parents. So we did this whole television series called Praying as a Family. And so this is one of the couples that we interviewed, and they're friends of mine, through my sister. So I want, I want to share with you um, a part of their story. So this is like the story we're going to look deepest into. It's a story of chastity and life. 
So I'm going to tell you kind of like the backstory of them. So Mike was a police officer and Chastity's a homemaker and physical therapist. And Mike started off with a police officer, but then he got really, really, really good. So he eventually got a SWAT team, and then he eventually became a SWAT team operator, which is pretty amazing, right? And so his voice used to play the police officer. Then he started to play SWAT team. Okay, so now this is what happened. Um, they had child number one, child number two, child number three. Right? And they say that's that's when you start to break down. Child number one, no problem. Child number two, no problem. Child number three, you ran out of arms, right? So okay, so they had child number three, and Chastity was like. Mike, I can't take this anymore. I'm not around adults all day. I'm home with kids. I need a break. Okay, so Mike's like, you know, he's going to be the male provider. So he says, okay, Chastity, this is what we'll do. Um, how about when I come home from work, just give me like, like 10 minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, like whatever. I can be fast. Let me shower up, change. I'll take the baby from you. I'll take over. And you can just have time for whatever you need to do. She's like, I would love that. Okay, so they start doing that, right? So that's right. She's like, oh. Um, Mike comes home, da 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 he showers. She, then as soon as she comes out of the shower changes, he comes out of the bedroom, she hands him the baby. She's like, yes, time for me. Okay, so she's like, wow, what am I gonna do? And she does, watch his television. So she sits down, starts watching television. Ah, this is great, okay. And then it's time to, you know, um, I guess they eat dinner and they get the kids a bath, and then they, um, and then, then they put the kids to bed, and then they're both so exhausted that what do they do? They both sit down. Watch touch. Okay. So this goes on for a few months. Goes on and on and on. Like, I don't know, maybe it goes on for two months, three months. And then something happens one day. One day Mike comes home, takes a shower, changes. Chastity goes to the bedroom, she's about to hand the baby because he's changed. And she's like, she's like, oh, my favorite show is about to come on, okay? But um, she's he's like, wait a minute, hold on a second. And she's like, okay, so she's holding the baby. And Mike goes over to the television and he unplugs it. Unplugs the television. She's like, what is he doing? Takes the television out into the garage. Oh my goodness, what is he doing? He puts the television in the garage, goes into this closet. He gets um, a crucifix and he nails it up on the same wall where the television used to be. Goes into the closet again. Got the Immaculate Heart of Mary. He got that, they were doing a raid on the wall. Um, was the antique store. And then he got uh, was that a night Mary? Mm-hmm. Sacred Heart of Jesus. She's like sitting, she's like standing there, stunned, holding a baby, right? And and she's like, what are we gonna do? Do we even know how to talk to each other anymore? Right? She's like freaking out, freaking out, freaking out, holding the baby. And he looks at her and he says, From now on, I want this to be the center of our life. She said, I was terrified, but I had never been, I have never been so attracted to my husband in all my life <laughs> as I was in that moment, right? Why? Because you know what every woman wants in a man? What does every woman want in a man? A spiritual leader. A spiritual leader, right? One who will die for her. Like Jesus, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, who died for her and gave himself up for her, right? Okay, so anyway, later on, Mike founded this group called Guns and Rosaries, which is great. They're from Texas. Um, <laughs> okay, so that's kind of my introduction to you um, of them. And so now we're picking up in their story when that was child number three. Now they're 
they're going to have child number four. Okay? Here we go. Here's their story. Child number four. So when we found out we were pregnant with our fourth child, we were ecstatic. So happy. And uh, everything was normal, and everyone was excited to welcome him to something. And then when um, he was born, we found out he was born, he was a breed, he was blue. So uh, he was being resuscitated, and everybody ran in from the NICU, and it was chaotic. And um, I remember one nurse started calling out features of his that were different. Um, but they took him out and they listened to the NICU, and I was just left there by myself and the baby, just terrified. Um, so, over the next few hours, I kind of developed that he's very sick, he's a genetic um, abnormality, is what they thought. He probably wouldn't have good night, so we needed to call the priest quick. So, we called the priest in and we had an emergency baptism. Um, and they actually told us, you know, you need to. Prepare yourself to bring him home and don't die because that's what's going to happen. He's not going to be able to live in his state. Uh, and they told us it several times over and over. Six days after we brought him home, the, that night he stopped breathing eight different times. And so the morning we went to the hospital, um, they said, you know, if you want to survive, we'll give him a trach. Uh, so said, okay, whatever you need to do. So he got a trach, he was in the ICU. Uh, but he was still suffering and didn't fix the problem. something totally unexpected, okay? Now, Mike is a SWAT team operator, right? He faces death on a regular basis. Do you know what Mike said? He said, I remember when Dominic had just been born. I had the realization that life had changed for us, and I was gripped with fear and anxiety. Right? A SWAT team operator, a little baby, he's gripped with fear and anxiety. But isn't this wonderful? Because it captures for us the natural reaction that we have to suffering, to not being in control. This is from the very beginning of being a little bit of control. It was very difficult of seeing your son suffer um, and being unable to do anything. I think um, really that's where my relationship with our lady um, began. Because she had to sit and watch her son So it was hard. Um, but, you know, as Dominic became more strong, he was out of any expectation of any physicians. Uh, it certainly uh, built strength 
that we had gone. Okay. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? Um, that through the suffering, what happened? He grew closer to Our Lady, right? Because she had to watch her son suffer and she couldn't do anything. So why, why is it so appealing? Why does this kind of draw our hearts to listen to Mike and Chastity? Because there's this incredible vulnerability, right? This incredible honesty that we see in them, right? That, that suffering is drawing out of them. So look what it's doing. It's making them more real. It's making them stronger. It's making them more lovable. You know, I think uh, through Dominic and God, you know, a lot of people have been coming to know God. And oftentimes it's by seeing mercy. I think people come to know God, uh, even if they, they know nothing of Him, by seeing people be merciful. And by caring for Dominic, they see that it's a palpable thing that they see us and uh, our children caring for him, or, or cleaning up his spit, or, you know, taking care of his trade, um, changing diapers, you know, all these things that you, it is shocking to see sometimes, and people look at that, but I think whenever you see that act of merciful love towards somebody who um, can't take care of themselves, it brings something out of people. Okay, this is what I want us to, to reflect on. Um, first, look at the way that they're interpreting their story. Right? Look at the way the kids interpret the story, right? She doesn't have to chew, that's awesome. Okay, look at how Chastity and Mike interpret their story. They're reading their story as suffused with God, right? It's full of God. Do you remember at the very beginning, Chastity said, you know, they didn't know what was happening and they knew that this baby was, gonna, was severely disabled. And she said, God was so thick at that time, right? They're reading their story as suffused with God. And I love that little line that he said, you know, Dominic trusts, like, why did God let this happen? Because this little baby who's helpless, he trusts. He trusts we're gonna take care of him. And so what is Dominic actually teaching us? He's teaching us that just like he trusts us to take care of him, we need to trust that God's going to take care of us, right? Isn't this, a, this is a fantastic interpretation. Now, do you know that psychologists say 
that one of the key determinants of happiness is not what happens to you in your past. Think about that. One of the key determinants of happiness is not what happened to you in your past, but how you interpret your past. So how do we interpret the story of our lives? Mike, chastity, what are they saying? They're saying God is teaching us that he is with us, wanting us to go deeper. You know, I remember um, when I was a younger sister, I was like, all these older sisters would be talking about going deeper, going deeper. I'm like, what the heck are they talking about? Well, now I kind of understand a little bit more. Um, there was a married woman, and she's, she had like, she's, like, she's a good friend of mine. She had like nine children. And I was talking to her not so long ago. And she just paused and she said, you know, God doesn't save our marriages from suffering. He saves our marriages through suffering. Isn't that astonishing to think about? God doesn't save our marriages from suffering. He saves our marriages through suffering. Right? It's the suffering together by chastity and life. They love each other even more than they ever had because, they see, because they're trying to struggle together. They're suffering together to love Dominic. Now, the Lord, Mike says, explains what this mystery is. Okay, so remember, we were doing these interviews, okay? And then some of the interviews made the television cuts. So that's what I'm showing you, the television cuts. But I have the full script of the interviews for the parts that didn't make the cut. So I'm, gonna, I'm reading to you from those parts. So this is what Mike said. Mike said, while listening to the gospel at Mass this Sunday, this line hit me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think this challenge from our Lord is key for all parents, but especially parents of kids with special needs. Parents who have the unique call to care for a child with special needs will necessarily lose their lives. All expectations and the sense of normal are lost in the life of a parent raising a child who is physically disabled. The crux of this challenge, however, is the phrase, for my sake. When this loss is accepted for his sake, then life makes sense and true peace and joy are found. However, when this critical component of the equation is missing, the loss of one's life and the sense of normal produces anxiety, depression, abuse, divorce, and death. When suffering that is endured through raising a child with special needs is turned in on oneself instead of offered to our Lord, the weight becomes unbearable. We have experienced both in the past five years and found that losing our life for his sake is not easy but it takes time, like training. It requires a daily decision. Some days we rely on ourselves too much and things look bleak and the anxiety produced from the self-absorption is suffocating. On the other hand, when we intentionally offer the suffering and the loss of normal to him, things begin to make sense and we're able to take on more and more. We find that we can pour ourselves out endlessly when Christ is at the center of our suffering. In raising Dominic, we can see clearly God's plan to show us how to rely on him, 
rather than on our own expectations and control. God's drama is always more interesting and dynamic than the one we try to plan and create for ourselves. So did you hear those phrases, right? He said it so well because he's living it. You know, Jacques Maritain, he says, the saints know the truth because they've suffered it, right? I kind of think of chastity and Mike as like, they're like saints, right? So they're, they're close to the truth because they've suffered it. So Mike speaks about this, the loss of one's life, the loss of the sense of normal. And he says it produces anxiety, depression. This is what happens with all suffering, any kind of suffering. And so there's a terrible temptation. I think he said it so well. A temptation to self-absorption, right? To turning it in on ourselves, self-pity, self-centeredness. And so this is where precisely surrender comes in, right? This is where we have to say to our Lord, okay, Lord, this is my cross, but if I will lie down on it, I'll be lying down next to you on it. And so embracing the cross with him. I love the way um, St. John Vianney, the curate of ours, put it. He said, to run from the cross is to be crushed by its weight. But to embrace it is to suffer no longer. Isn't that beautiful? To run from the cross is to be crushed by its weight. But to embrace it is to suffer no longer. So this is where we're called to go out and meet Christ, right? Where we're called to surrender. You know, C.S. Lewis has this image of the sculptor, right? That God is the sculptor and we're that piece of marble. And in order for us to become the masterpiece he wants us to be, he has to hammer at us, he has to chisel at us, he has to scrape and he has to polish. And what we have to do is be docile, right? Because imagine if the marble were like, no, 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 right? Then you just stay a piece of marble, right? Like the grain of wheat that doesn't want to die. So surrender, docility, embracing the cross, that's the quickest, easiest, most painless way out of suffering, right? Stop resisting. Stop trying to take back control. I recently had someone say to me, I think that when women find out that they're going to be disabled, she will support them for that reason. And it just really hurt with my heart. Like, Dominic, it's true, he's a burden. You know, and I think that we do injustice when we deny that people are Dominic burdens, they are. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Are we supposed to care for one another? You know, and uh, yeah, your life is going to change, but you're going to learn how to love because that's all these children can do. So, John Paul II, he said, suffering is in this world to release love, right? Because we don't really know how to love. I think about, again, the Down syndrome mom. Think about Mike and Chastity. What do these children do? They teach them how to love. That's what other people do. Suffering teaches how to love. So look at how Dominic's suffering draws love out of Mike. It draws love out of chastity. It draws love out of his little brothers and sisters, right? You saw some of those pictures. And so um, it's beautiful, again, this idea of how they're interpreting their story. So chastity was explaining why she called, why they decided to name him Dominic. Okay, so I'm just going to read to you from what she said. 
We named him Dominic after Saint Dominic, that great preacher. And we call our Dominic the preacher without words. His life, his presence, his appearance shock people. He preaches the sanctity of life and the goodness of life. Okay, um, next in the interview what happened was I was talking to Mike and I was like, okay, so what, aren't you wondering like what syndrome does he have? You know, like what's his illness actually diagnosed as officially, okay? So they didn't know at the time what it was called. And so this is Mike's answer to the question, what syndrome does he have? Okay, so listen again to that, how they're interpreting this story. We would just call it the happy holy syndrome uh, because, you know, he, whenever he was around the Eucharist and he was in church, he was just totally different kid. He was just kind of gazed typically, you know, normal behavior, kind of looked off. Um, early on, and then when he went into the sanctuary, he was looking at something, he was, he was tracking it. And doing things that he really wouldn't do. And it was just a, a great consolation that, that God uh, provided, uh, a gift, you know. I think every Sunday we go to Mass, some, some new family comes up to us and, and touches him and talks to us about him and just how amazing um, they are at him. And it's nothing that we asked for, nothing that we could have done on our own, because we were just an the old family of the that the whole time was here. So I think that's what his life is for, you know, it's, it's, he's uh, totally trusted. He trusts us to take care of his body. Uh, and I think that is what we're called to do. Uh, and it's the hardest thing to do, to have total trust in God. And he shows us how to do that on a daily basis. Uh, he trusts in us, uh, take care of him, and all he does is pray. You know, Christ's most active time of his life is in the Eucharist cross, and he couldn't do anything. And that Dominic is not going to be able to do anything. But he's going to have a very active life, you know? And that, uh, we just pray constantly that um, we're able to say yes to whatever God asks Dominic to do. We only have to bring him to do it, and that we'll be able to say yes and allow him to be active and do God's work. So now I'm going to show you this last clip. And I, I'm sorry that I didn't know how to edit this, but you're going to see credits rolling. So just ignore the credits rolling, okay? And just listen to what um, Mike and Chastity say in this last clip. Honestly, not really a good problem. This is what doctors throughout his life. He's 
school that you would not be After going through these last 100 years of filming, I think that I would say to anybody that needs some encouragement, that have a child with special needs, or maybe is pregnant, you know, or they're dealing with diagnosis. Um, but this is a great gift. That this is going to be hard. And they're crying. And, um, but it's a gift, you know, that we experience God for these little children. All children are innocent, even when they grow up. These children are innocent, they grow up in these things. And uh, we just encourage you to accept the gift and accept the cross that comes along with it. And just know that um, that um, you receive this because God loves you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a, it's just a special blessing to receive. And if you have time to make, man, that would be a lot better if you were to know all. And it's true. Life would be a lot easier, but it would be better. Okay, that's what got me. I was watching the videos again. I was like, what the heck is she talking about, right? Life would be easier, but it wouldn't be better. Okay, so I, I wrote to her. I just wrote her a quick email. I said, Chastity, you've captivated, captivated me by, by these words. What are you talking about, right? And so I did not expect to get the reply that I got, but um, I'm going to read it to you. There are times in this life with a severely disabled child that I feel like I'm suffocating, literally being held underwater. And I began having anxiety attacks a few years back, and I have what I think is a form of PTSD from the many times we've had to intervene to save Dominic's life. Once was before Thanksgiving when I was up early making pies. The alarms went off, and I ran in to find Dominic had turned gray. We brought him back, and afterward I went back to making pies. And I remember thinking, this isn't normal. I don't care about pies. I just saved my kid's life. I struggle with depression, and often I have to pull myself up from loathing the life that I have. What makes life so hard is the lack of normalcy and having to deny my other kids the things that other kids with a normal family have, like sports. Because we just can't do that kind of thing with Dominic. We'd have to pack so much just to leave the house, make a mental plan just in case there's an emergency while we're out. It's just the chronic stress. And so in these instances, life certainly would be easier without Dominic. We could be what the world deems normal, and it just may be fun. And it isn't always just pleading with God for Dominic's life. There have been times I've pleaded with God to take his life, make his suffering end, and mine too. But even in those times, Eventually, I have to stop and say, your will, Lord, not mine. I'll do this as long as you ask. So in a sense, I guess the way Dominic makes our life better is that he brings the reality of heaven through those little joys sprinkled in a difficult life, as well as the pains of Calvary right up front in our life. We have constant opportunities to love Jesus through Dominic's distressing disguise, especially when we don't want to. God has given my kids firsthand experience of pouring themselves out for someone who can do nothing for them in return. They love Dominic for his own sake, not theirs. And hopefully, they'll grow to love him for God's sake. So I'm thankful that the Lord is teaching us to love in this way. And while it's terribly difficult, 
I wouldn't want to change a thing. And through the tremendous grace we have received from God, I can see that while that fairy tale life may be easier, it would be much poorer. I consider our family rich to have Dominic, to have the little joys the world doesn't see. Last month, I taught him to give me a kiss, a tremendous accomplishment. We have these sufferings to unite our hearts to the Lord, the opportunity to really need God. I'm afraid a life without this severe form of suffering would lead me straight to hell via the road of the world. Dominic's limitations make us slow down, stop, and take time to see, really see. We find ourselves on our backs so often through despair, depression, another surgery, and we have to look up, open our eyes, and see him who saves. It gives us the opportunity to unite ourselves with Jesus on the cross and the opportunity to say yes, even when it feels like hell. It's easy to say, your will be done. But when you have repeatedly watched as your child is being wheeled back for yet another emergency surgery and that you're unsure he'll come out of it, you have to really trust and mean those words. You know, when Dominic was born, one verse stood out to me. I had it hanging over his incubator and later his bed. Still, this very simple verse gets me through many hard times. I find great comfort in it. It is my very favorite. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my soul, bless his holy name. Do not forget all he has done for you. So to hear this, right, to see it, it's both painful and beautiful. Why? Because we're seeing a dying and a new birth. And I think we can't help but be moved by Chastity's authenticity, right? Mike's authenticity. They're so real. Right? They've accepted the suffering. They're docile to it. And so what do, we, what do they show us? They show us that suffering helps us to receive the love that makes us more real. Suffering is the arena in which God makes us more real. And what's the fruit of suffering? Joy. Joy. Rest in the possession of love. Rest in the possession of the Lord. Rest in the possession of reality. Right? How often do people try to run away from reality? But better than, um, better than running away than any fantasy world is the reality that God creates. And so look at them, right? Um, they're a beautiful family, right? They're not this fake, fake, like happy, smiley, smiley family. But aren't they rich? They have a wealth beyond any other kind of money. And what do they show us? That happiness is not in power, but in weakness. And poverty and weakness make them beautiful. And they don't just have pleasure in one another. They delight in one another. And you know what I think is really cool? They will have fame in the communion of saints. They'll be known for this noble accomplishment, love. And even now, 
They belong, right? They belong to the communion of saints because they've embraced the mystery of suffering. Suffering is in this world to release love. Love is the source of all genuine joy. It's the source of the deepest joy. And it's the joy we're made for. So it's okay to be in for yourself, but that's normal. But don't run from it. Run toward it. Because it's there on the cross that you will meet our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's there on the cross that you will not only find joy, but a happiness deeper than any you could ever desire. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall, world without end. Amen. All you angels and saints, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all so much for your amazing, patient listening. And I'm sorry, I do belong to a support group called On and On and On. So I'm working, I'm working on it, but I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know if we have time for questions.